Welcome to the Career Up Now Socially Distance Close-Ups Israel Edition. I'm your host, Sophia Felsen. Today we are joined by Didi Medina, who is the product design and leadership consultant at Function Inform. He has had years of product design and management experience at companies like Compass and Teespring, and has also worked at WeWork as their entrepreneur in residence and lab mentor. Thank you for joining us. So to consult companies and product design teams requires many skills. Can you share with me briefly how you acquired those skills and just how you got to where you are today? In a very unorthodox way, let's put it that way. I started off, I guess it all started when I left my parents' house when I was about 14 and a half and I needed a way to make money. And I guess the only, the thing that went through my brain was I need to find something that is a career or something that makes real money. I didn't want to see myself working in a restaurant forever. So what I did was the first career path that I can come up with was being a photographer because I figured that they didn't need a diploma, but it was a professional job. I grew up in a Jewish community. So like there's a lot of weddings, bar mitzvahs and stuff like that. So I figured I can do that. I did get into that initially, but then I quickly got into photo editing, which brought me into the design world and Photoshop world, which quickly went into UI design because iPhones started coming out at the time. And I started tinkering with that. And a couple of years later, I tried to start my own company failed after I was done with that. Companies tried to recruit me and were willing to hire me because I had some experience even from my failure. And I moved out to the Bay Area when I was about 17 years old to get take my first like professional position at a tech company in Palo Alto. And then while in the Bay Area, I was there for about five, six years. I worked with a handful of companies that you mentioned, including Tayspring, including Mixbook. And then I moved back to uh, New York where I worked as a senior product designer and also product manager over at Compass. That was for about two years. And then I continued from New York, my journey to Israel. I did an Aliyah about three years ago. And now I work as a consultant where I help tech startups build out design departments, product design departments within their company. That's kind of like the whole path. So you said that your first company failed basically was there what did you learn from that experience and what did you bring from that experience to your business now i think like the thing that i learned was especially because i was in a i was about like 15 and a half i was almost 16 at the time building a company and i got pretty far for a kid like I got people to like invest in me. I got people to like give me office space. I, I managed to get a lot of impossible things done. I think the lesson, the main lesson that I, I learned early on is it's better to sell confidence than value. Because if you sell the confidence, you can generate the value eventually as long as you're disciplined enough. And, and that was like a lesson that I learned early on is like when, when people are like kind of like assessing you, interviewing you, you're not trying to prove that you're going to win on all fronts. You're trying to build confidence. And that's a little bit wider. Like the reasons why people have confidence in people is not because it's proven that they've already done the thing they're hiring you to do. Most times you're interviewing for a position where nobody could have been in a position where they're doing what they're being hired to do. Usually something similar, they're looking for patterns uh, that can overlap. But the people who tend to get the job are the ones that usually portray a certain level of confidence in the person that's talking to them, that they stand the highest chance to connect the dots from their experiences in the past to do good on the job that they're about to be given. And, and that's kind of like what I took away from the whole thing. And, and I took kind of like this contrarian approach to the way I approached everything in life from that point on, because as a kid, you're told that you can't get the job, you, you have to have like a degree, you have to have like, you know, 10 years experience. 
and I found ways to build confidence in people to give me a chance. And, and that's kind of like what stuck with me and that enabled my entire career and allowed me to like kind of break through a lot of glass ceilings um, really, really quickly and very early on in my career. Wow, that's really interesting. For someone who's just starting out in product design uh, or product management, what are a few things you'd recommend or advice that you have maybe to build that confidence or just in general? So that's interesting. That's a great question. Um, I, I think the first thing is confidence is not something, confidence is the outcome. It's not the process, right? Courage is the process. Confidence is the outcome. You don't walk if you're If you're waiting for the day that you walk into a situation where you're like, all right, I have the confidence to do this. You're never going to find it. You just kind of have to have the balls to do it. Even when you know, it's probably going to blow up in your face, do it anyways, do enough of those things. Eventually something sticks and that teaches you, hey, I can actually possibly do this. Sometimes people have enough courage to stomach the first go around, like they'll try doing something crazy or out of their scope the first time around. But then if they get rejected the first time around and never step up to the plate the second time, the people who tend to like win or go really, really far, really quick are usually the people who can take that slap and do it again. And it's not, and the people who are doing that are not necessarily people who are confident. They're people who are to some degree ignorant to the consequences, right? They're just like, it takes a certain amount of courage to just say, you know what, I know this can go sideways. I'm going to do it anyways. There's definitely like, you know, a certain like level of ethics you have to practice while doing that. You can't lie to people, but you definitely have to be honest about what you're strong with and work those strengths and, and frame them in a way that builds confidence on the opposing side. And, and bear in mind that everybody that's about to take that job is going to, in one way, shape or form, not going to be suited to succeed at it in the first three months and they're going to have to learn something. And there's a certain grace period that's afforded to everybody to be able to pick up the skills that need to be picked up in order to do well. So as long as you're clear with yourself that you're not going to ever be in a situation where you have the confidence to succeed at something while you're being asked to do it, but rather you need to stomach the courage to step up to the plate anyways. And then eventually you get some things right and you're like, okay, I've done this right. I've done this hard or impossible thing before. I'm pretty sure this task, even though it's nothing to do with that previous task, it's still of the nature of impossible. And I've done impossible things before. There's like this transferable, like, like confidence that comes from just doing things that are really, really hard. You'll do something in your personal life. That's really, really hard. And then you look at the task that's in front of you, like in your career. And you're like, all right, if I did that, if I could raise kids, I can do that. Right. Like at a certain point, it's just, it's all the same process. Just like step up to the plate with a little bit of courage. Try not to think too much about all the ways it can go wrong because then you just won't start and just go at it and expect things to go wrong. And I think that's the difference. It's just like, try not to overanalyze what will go wrong, but rather just expect things to go wrong and go at it anyways, and continuously like stand back up every time you get slapped down. I think that's like the main thing I, I would give away to people. People think like the people who are successful, like walk into things with a certain level of confidence. I, I was petrified in my first interview. It's just learning how to stomach it and, and hide it and, and show a certain level of confidence, even though you're, you're trembling inside is, is a hard thing to do, but eventually it becomes like first nature. So I guess that comes back to like, fake it till you make it, you know? I think one thing that product managers are really good at is adapting to the situation mm -hmm. and just <clears throat> finding solutions no matter what. <laughs> so with that in mind, is there one core value that guides your life or that has played a big role in your life? As a product manager or in general? As a human, as a product manager, it can be both. I think like it goes back to the point that I was saying is like, I see more of my role, uh, especially like in work um, and also my personal life is like being an advocate for courage rather than being the oracle for a solution. I think great solutions are a byproduct of a team effort, not just 
one person. And some people put on the pressure on themselves like, oh, as a person in a management position or a leadership position, I have to have the answers. But I find that me, the biggest or the most important thing that I bring to the table is not necessarily the answers. Or rather, I'm capable of bringing you know, the tools that are needed to have productive conflict, right? Like mm-hmm. what I'm good at is facilitating productive conflict. I can bring five people into a room that have completely opposing opinions and create a very safe space where people can debate out their ideas and eventually commit to a direction moving forward. Even if I don't input anything on what should be done, but rather just like facilitate like a psychologist, like hearing what people are saying, making sure the other person registered that thought, giving constructive criticism without ever needing to be the one that has the best idea for a solution. I think 10% of the time I'm the one with the solution. 90% of the time it's my team. Um, I just bring the tools to the meeting that allows them to facilitate that brainstorm. And I find that's what good leadership is about. And I think that's leadership expands past the workspace. Like, you know, even in relationships, like being the person who can just create a space where people can talk, share ideas and get aligned. That is what's needed more than actually being the one with the answer, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the difference between leadership and problem solving is like, if you're a leader, you're not necessarily the person that's supposed to solve the problem. You're supposed to facilitate or enable the problem solving to happen. If you're solving the problem, you're not leading, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And the world definitely needs more leaders in all fronts, like whether it's in in a family situation or it's in a work environment, uh, leadership is like very, very much underlooked and underappreciated. I think like Seth Godin said it really well, like problem solving and leadership are two most important skills that you can teach someone today's day and age, especially in a knowledge, you know, work environment because we're less and less relying on labor. And that's the things that you just don't learn in school. It's just people skills and learning how to bring the best out of people. That's, that's the best, I think. Uh, I'm sure in this time of COVID, needing to listen to each other is, is needing to listen to each other has become um, more important than ever, um, just because these are such unprecedented times and no one knows what's going on. Um, I'm sure as a product designer, you've had to really of the box during this time. What new challenges or opportunities does the pandemic present for you and, and your consulting firm? So that's a good question. I, I fortunately designed my systems in the way I operate my business in a way that it didn't get really affected by COVID. Um, it got accelerated by COVID, if I had to be completely honest. Mm-hmm. The thing is, I'm in a market where, you know, tech companies are very, very well funded and they're not here for like six months, seven months. Whereas like a local store probably doesn't have the ban- like the runway to live out that long. And also traditional businesses don't either. The, the thing that's, that's unique about tech companies is they're funded to survive two, three years without making any money. Um, because it takes a long time to get product market fit, uh, to build out their business model, to assemble the team. It's really expensive. So a lot of startups uh, might have become a little more conservative with the way they spend money uh, in the, it, it, during like COVID, but nonetheless, they, they were in their burn rate. They, they were burning money before they were uh, in COVID, mm-hmm. right? The shifts were more around like getting used to working in a remote environment. A lot of companies are used to being in a centralized office. A lot of productivity came from habits that they've established being around people directly um, and learning how to do that remotely was really, really hard. I think as far as like on the consultancy side, something that I learned because I have like a lot of friends that weren't really, uh, they didn't really do well with COVID. They, they lost a lot of business. There's two things like companies that were small in the tech world, they died out because they didn't have the, the infrastructure or the resources to survive a year without making money. So s- some other colleagues or peers that I know in the industry didn't do so well, like with COVID 
Um, and my main takeaway from that in seeing the way I operate my business versus the way they operate their business, it has more to do with most people that are consultants or self-employed are working on organic, an organic business model, meaning uh, it's word to mouth. Whatever comes to them, like good leads come to them, they take them and they work. That's how they get their projects. It's like people like talk about them to, to their friends and then that, that's how they get referrals. It's all referral based. The, the thing is in a market that's flourishing, like there's an excess amount of companies looking to spend money and there's not enough suppliers to, or vendors to actually supply the services that are needed in those kind of markets, which is like say circa like 10 months ago, every designer or product designer, product manager uh, that's consulting was doing pretty okay, right? Maybe not in the first year. It takes a little bit of a, a, a little while until like people start spreading your work, like your name around. But once your name is in circulation, that you're available, you take on projects, you work in this field. Um, you know, you make enough money if the market's great, right? Now, when the market's good, you get a decent amount of referrals. It's also good. But when the market's bad, there's still contracts on the table waiting for the taking, like somebody to come take them. However, there's not a surplus to the point where companies are seeking you out, but there are enough that if you know how to hunt uh, for clients, you tend to do well. So it's like, it's a bad market's a hunter's game, right? Like if you know how to do your business development, you know how to generate business, not just wait for business to show up on your lap. Um, you know how to do sales, then you're, you can actually do pretty, pretty okay. The second thing is that I realize is like peers that are working with smaller companies, Again, companies that didn't have the infrastructure to live out the storm, um, all their contracts tumbled. Also, all their vendors got were the first to get terminated. Uh, whereas, like their employees, they try to secure them before securing their vendors. They first get rid of their vendors. After that, if they still don't have enough like funding to survive what's coming up, they'll start cutting down some employment. Um, but vendors are always the first to go. So the thing is, most most vendors, uh, there's always about a a hundred small projects for every one big project that's available on the market, right? So it's very easy to get like these small $2,000, $5,000 projects. Now for me, when I was working with customers, I started making a really aggressive push after the first year of working as a consultant to take like projects that are no less than $40,000. These are much bigger projects. They usually spend upwards of seven, eight months. But what ended up happening during COVID is like, because I'm signing much bigger contracts to begin with, most of these contracts can only be signed by companies that have a much stronger infrastructure. Smaller companies can't commit to like a $40,000 project over eight months, but bigger companies can. And that was just the position I was in when COVID came around that I happened to have a lot of contracts signed with much, much more, like much stronger, uh, like clients, clients that had much stronger infrastructure. So I didn't get bit by it. I actually got accelerated by it. What ended up happening was, with uh, companies that have really strong infrastructure, the way I said COVID hit them was they started having to adopt to working in a remote environment. And all their employees, like some of them have kids, um, productivity just drastically dipped overnight uh, based on their employees that they had, right? And they had to figure out a way to keep velocity up. And to them, they were like, hey, like Didi is already working from home. Didi is already self-employed. He knows how to do this whole work from home thing. Let's just take more of his bandwidth because he actually knows how to manage himself in this type of environment. So mm. I actually got significantly more work from clients I already had that were really, really big, uh, which are also the higher paying clients. And yeah, I had like one or two smaller clients that died off. But at the same time, my bigger clients took up all that bandwidth and paid me double for that time. I got really lucky that my business model, the way I do business, like panned out during COVID. If I had to give somebody feedback of like how to succeed during COVID, it's like go for bigger clients 
learn how to hunt for, for business rather than wait for referrals. Um, and that's like a business game. It's not a designer's game. It's like, you need to know how to do biz dev. You need to know how to do sales. And if you get good at that, you'll, you'll, you'll not only survive, you'll thrive in a complicated market. Wow. That's really interesting. Cause I think people, as you said, like a lot of people didn't have that experience. So it was probably like, I'm sure you had to think a lot about the ways in which your business thrived and the ways that your peers maybe hadn't. Do you think that intuition is a part of design and that maybe some designers, it comes more easily to them? Or are we all creators, but we just haven't tapped into that part of ourselves? Or how do we become better creators? How do you think this all, all relates? You're saying, are, are some people more gifted naturally than others at doing this job? Yeah. I, I think maybe, right? Like, I think to some degree, there, there's, uh, there's some people who are more uh, gifted um, or talented than others naturally in this specific space. Again, I don't think it's naturally like you, it's genetic. You might have been exposed to certain types of thinking or mental models as a kid from like the jobs your parents did that enabled you to work and the things you do like really, really well. Like for me, um, I find that product design uh, or my ability to think about really complicated systems uh, has come from like my really yeshivish like upbringing. I grew up like uh, in yeshiva and, and I learned Gemara and, and Mishnah and all this different stuff like really, earn, really early on in my life, but it built a tolerance in my, in, in my cognitive capacity to think about really complicated, like, uh, you know, debates and conflicts um, and try to get to a point of resolution. Um, so my brain was primed for that, like, since I was, like, at an early age. It's like being taught, like, you know, law, like going to law school at the age of 10. You, you find, like, lawyers have, like, a really, really strong capacity to be able to find, like, intricacies and loopholes and clever solutions to really complex problems. Uh, because, again, they're, they're taught that in school. They have to think about things. There's a thousand variables to factor in. There's always a side door to everything. That type of priming that I got from, like, when I was a kid. So what was I – did it come to me more naturally? Uh, depends how you want to define that. It's not genetic, but some things – prior to you stepping into your career might have uh, primed you for being able to think in the mental models you need to be able to excel in your specific skill. I do believe that, you know, in the end of the day, some people just have a head start and the people who make it the furthest, like the furthest distance are the ones that just keep at it and are the most diligent on reinventing what they know. Because naturally what you know can become your bias and also the cripple of not being able to like furtherly expand into new ways of thinking to be able to solve new challenges that your previous mental models haven't been like are not allowing you to do and in a, in a position that i'm in like where i'm in tech where things are reinventing themselves every day i think that's like the harder skill that i had to learn in my career is not like learning how to do it but rather relearning how to do it like a, like it's not relearning like teaching myself the skill to like delete what I know and not make that bias me into like figuring out new ways of solving challenges, right? Um, because you naturally always gravitate to the things you know to try to use that and forcibly solve the problems you have at hand. Um, and being able to like set that aside and create a pathway in your mind to, to learn new ways of solving these new challenges that are unidentified to you um, and your, your, your overall makeup, I think that's the harder bit. 
Um, so I think like skill, discipline definitely outwins gift every single day. Some people are just like, you know, get a little bit of a kickstart, but that's all they get. Do you notice that the problems that you deal with for Israeli companies are different than the problems with American companies? Just because I feel like in Israel, there are a lot more variables, like the culture is very different. You know, the people are very different. It's just very, it's all just really different there. I think there are a lot more like challenges in Israel, whereas America, it's kind of like, I guess both are hubs necessarily. Just do you see um, differences in the challenges of each uh, cultures? Yeah, so there's two, two types of challenges you need to deal with whenever you're creating a product or, or something within a company or initiative. So there, there's the internal challenges and the external challenges. External is like, what are, what's true about the market? What are the opportunities? What are the pain points in the market that we can go and solve? right? Um, should we create a flying car, right? Are, are people like stuck in traffic and we need to make new pathways to be able to like expedite people's way of getting to work or where they need to get to because the main ground like, you know, road is just too clogged up at this point. That's a market, that's an external like challenge. Um, you need to validate it and make sure that the, the market's ready for it, uh, all this different stuff. Uh, but then there's internal challenges, which is asking the question of like, now that we know there's a challenge that's worth solving in the market, how are we going to get in our own way of being able to do the best work we can do, which is more like the culture, the habits you have inside as a team. Um, you can have a great idea, but usually the reasons why companies uh, fail is due to bad timing, right? Like they're solving something too soon. The market's not ready for it. And um, that's the number one reason. But the second one is like, they're just uh, not aligned as a team. Mm -hmm. A team that's aligned will win much faster than a team that's not aligned with the best idea, right? Because a team that's aligned that has a bad idea will iterate their way to success faster than a team that's not aligned can execute on the first idea they had that was brilliant, right? Mm -hmm. um, so for me, like, I try to make sure that internally uh, people are aligned. And as far as culturally in Israel, it's definitely different culturally. You have significantly more men in the workforce than women. Um, there's not as much of a balanced workforce as I'd like to see. It's kind of like America 40 years back, as far as like its progressive state of making sure that there's an equal amount of roles um, and opportunities for both female and male and also against like the different races that are in Israel. Israel has a lot. They have like you know, you have like your imported Jews from across the world, you have Ethiopians, you have Arabs, you have, you have a bunch of different uh, classes um, and, and races that are not all given equal opportunity. And I think the reason why this sucks is not because I'm just going to come at it and say, hey, we need to create an equal work environment. I think that's true too. And that's just something you shouldn't have to explain at this point. But when it comes to product and opportunity, um, having a diverse perspective on what it is you're like creating is so lucrative to coming up with really good original ideas. Uh, but when you have like, you know, a bunch of ex army dudes um, that are super macho alpha males as the singular people who are coming up with ideas, you tend to get ideas that are very monothematic. You don't really get a good array of possibilities. Um, and that hinders your, your ability to come up with creative ideas um, so for me, like working with Israeli companies, a lot of the companies is also important to, to highlight, like they might be based in Israel, but they're creating products for usually markets aside from Israel. Like most tech companies in Israel are not making products for the Israeli like market. 
they're making it for America, mm -hmm. Europe, uh, stuff like that. There's just much bigger market opportunity outside of Israel. It's really just working with the, uh, you know, cultural differences. There's a lot more alpha male types. There's a lot more like insecurity on the male side of being able to take instructive feedback. But I, I think though that is true in general, if you work with really, really professional people, people who it's not their first rodeo or they're not, it's not their first year in tech or opening up a company or creating a company, usually a lot of those habits and behaviors have been flushed out prior to you arriving. And there isn't a lot of differences. Just the way it manifests, just there's not enough diversity in the workforce. But aside from that, working with the actual people, they're very, very similar. You can put them into a company in America and you'll have like someone who's matured and, and been in tech for like a couple of years, worked at a company, uh, started a company, whatever. It doesn't matter. You put them into like an American company, you're not going to feel a difference working with that person. If someone or if a college student or young professional were moving to Israel, what would be your advice to them? Okay, so when I hire people, I, I look for two things, right? And most of the people that I've hired in the past that didn't work out is usually because I've optimized for one out of the two things, not both at the same time. So the two pillars that I hire on are both motives and experience, right? Like you can have all the experience in the world doing the job I need you to do, but your motives is to find like a vacation job so you can spend more time with your kids over the next two years and you're not looking to really extend yourself or really invest yourself into the company or the problem. You just do as much as you can, you can get away with, right? That person's not good for the job. And I've hired that person, I've paid that person a lot of money and also had to bite the bullet and fire him, right? So, and then there's the flip side, like someone who's super motivated, right? Really hungry, but doesn't have any experience, right? And then that becomes a drain because you're, you're stuck like mentoring them, coaching them, working with them, like, you know, one for one, and they don't have the tools to self-help. I think at a certain point when you have enough experience in general working professionally, you have this capacity to self-teach yourself, right? Uh, to be able to say, fine, here's like a problem. It's ambiguous. I don't understand how to solve it, but I know how to use the tools that I have to figure out how to solve it, right? I can go use Google. I can go, I know who to talk to. I know how to find like friends that have done this before and start asking the right questions to do the research and figure out a path forward for myself, right? kind of taking the strain off of your, your, your managers, right? Because your manager's job is not necessarily to um, do your job. It's to figure out what you're going to need to work on in six months from now. Like if the manager and leadership team is not consumed by being proactive about what's tomorrow's problem, then they're consumed about what is today's problem. And thus they're not doing their job well. Right. Um, so at a certain degree, the thing that I find that lacks in a lot of people is they, a lot of people coming into the work environment, very motivated, they're very hungry. They're also very nov, like novice. They're like, they're very naive. Like they don't know what they don't know. So they just assume they have everything they need in order to do a good job. Uh, but that's not true. And what I, what I say is like in tech, you can start a company with a designer and an engineer. You can even start a company with just being an engineer, right? Like you can go solve a problem. That's what it's about, right? People are hiring you for, is not necessarily your experience in Photoshop or in Figma or in Sketch to actually design. Like you usually can teach that pretty quickly or I can send you to a course to teach you like visual design skills. Problem solving, the thing you need to know, the thing you need to have a good, you know, in Yiddish they say you have to have a cup for that, you know, like a good cup. Like if you, if you don't have a good cup for that, like you're just not gonna do good in that space, right? Like 
You need to be able to think about problems and take ambiguity and break it down into manageable pieces and workable pieces, understand human psychology, understand what motivates people to use your solution once you're done with it and working from the outside in. That's something you can't teach. We talk about intuition, but what is intuition? Intuition is experience. It's all it is. It's like you, you've spent enough time working with people, working with problems, disambiguating them, solving them. And thus you have an intuition of being able to take something that's unclear to you and figuring out something tangible that creates value. Now you could have done this as a kid when you're like, okay, I have my own problem. I'm going to start a blog about it. Now a blog is a product, right? What it's selling is information, right? But you've gone from like figuring out this is a, an itch that I need to scratch and figuring out how to do it in a tangible way and delivering something of value that stuck around and you scaled it, you took feedback, you iterated on it and you worked on that, right? Products can be looked on way more broadly than just saying, did you ever work on software? And if you don't have those problem solving skills, like you don't know how to take something that is unclear and make a clear path forward and create value, you're, 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 you're somebody who requires a lot of attention and babysitting. It's not called management anymore. It's called babysitting. And most companies, especially startups, don't have the infrastructure to babysit. They don't have the infrastructure to train you. And if you want to get yourself to a point where you're good enough, stop telling yourself, like, I need to have seven jobs so it looks good on a resume so people expect, accept me. You're right that some people look at the shallow things on a job, like on a, on, on a CV. But the thing that really makes you desirable is just your ability to solve problems. And there's problems all around you. You can just go... Pick a problem that you have in the day-to-day -day and figure out a solution for it and commoditize it. Like bring it out to market, have other people play with it, right? Um, it can be software. It can be a blog. It can be something. Just figure out a way to solve an issue and see what that teaches you. And so if you're coming to, to like a job, just be ready in, in, in a form of saying, hey, you're not expected to know everything or how to solve the problems that are about to be put in front of you. And anybody who's interviewing you from a standpoint or a framing that says, hey, I'm trying to find somebody who knows exactly how to solve this and has done this seven times before, you need to remind them respectively, hey, most likely nobody has ever worked on this specific problem in this specific like version of it in the past. If they did, it would have been solved. You wouldn't have any opportunity in the market to solve it, right? It's been done before, right? So I, I want to assume that what you're solving is unique to some degree and thus what I need to rely on is my ability to solve problems in general and connect mental models that I've had from other situations in my life to be able to disambiguate this problem, and move forward on it. And that's really what you're selling. It's kind of like somebody once told me like, in order to be interesting, you need to do interesting things. This is the same thing today in a knowledge based work environment. We hire problem solvers. In order to be a problem solver, you, you, you would have had to interact with problems in the past and have solved them. And if you don't have experience doing that on any capacity, it's going to be hard to hire you. If you have a little bit of, uh, you know, motivation to, to, to solve that problem, which is you're unhirable, right? You're already off to a good start. YouTube, Google, like come up with an idea, solve it. And you'll see, you just have a much easier time talking about problem solving in an interview. And that's primarily what you're going to be assessed on aside from motives. It's like, all right, this guy knows how to solve problems. He knows how to think he has a cup. The next thing is like, is he motivated to apply himself to the best he can in this company or is his motives misaligned? Is he just looking for a job because he, he lacks funding right now and he can't afford to pay his rent so he's taking whatever he can get? Or does he have plenty of options but he's looking for the highest bidder um, and he's looking for a vacation job? So that's also on behalf of the interviewer to know how to like sift out your motives. But as long as your motives are in the right place, your problem solving skills are, are solid, 
um, most people would be stupid not to hire you. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think that it's interesting that we don't really learn problem solving as like a thing in school and it just happens, I guess, through experience. I believe that school is kind of outdated in that way. But yeah, I mean, problem solving is applicable to all jobs. And so I think um, really highlighting it um, is necessary. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your wisdom for Career Up Now Socially Distanced Close-Up Podcast. I really enjoyed uh, learning more about your story and the ways in which we can solve better problems. So thank you so much. Absolutely. My pleasure.